Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Our first lesson today comes from the Revelation in chapter 22, picking up in verse 12. Listen now to the Word of God. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let everyone who hears say, Come, and let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from that person's share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I invite you to stand as you are able. The second lesson this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles uh, in chapter 16. The beginning of the chapter begins with individuals, or with Paul and Silas, having crossed over from Asia into Europe, into uh, what is called Macedonia, and an interaction that occurs there, so beginning in the 16th verse of the 16th chapter. One day, as we were going from the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought, her to, uh, her, brought to her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews, and they are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates 
had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them there securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At that same hour of the night, he took them and he washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he, he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Growing up in a uh, Southern Baptist church, one of the exercises that I partook of as a child was called a sword drill. Some of you may know that. You take a Bible and you hold it like this, and the, a verse is called out, John 3.16 or Psalm 100 or something like that, and then there's a mad, you rush to find it. Who said, Christians weren't competitive. And you did this for several times, and somebody that got the most got a gold star or something like that. One of the verses that kept would repeat itself frequently was sometimes Acts 16, 30, and 31. It is the story of the Philippian jailer who called out, what must I do to be saved? And the answer always in our sword drill exercises was believe in the Lord Jesus, period. That's all we read. What must I do to be saved? They answered, believe on the Lord Jesus. Years later, when I took to reading the Bible and I read that particular verse, I found out there was a little bit more to it because believe on the Lord Jesus doesn't end with a period but it is followed by a comma. And the comma, after the comma, the clause is you and your household. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Hmm. Belief. What does it mean to believe? We think of belief as very often an intellectual exercise. We assent to certain propositions, or we agree with certain positions. I believe that the earth is part of the solar system and part of a, a vast array of, of space. And I've seen the pictures from the Hubble telescopes and other uh, exercises like that. Yes, I believe. I believe that the sun will rise in the east 
tomorrow morning as it did this morning. I believe what some people say. I believe. I, I check the box. I assent. I, I agree. I, I connect with what they say. Yet there is something else to believe besides simple agreement. There is an emotional element to belief. And part of that emotion is trust. Is the idea that is presented or is the person who's say, saying this, are they credible? Literally, are they believable? Is this plausible? Is it probable? Can it be trusted? Is it believable? In some way, some ways, all of these gradations of belief are about trust. Can I, can we, can any of us trust the message? Or can we believe the messenger, trust the messenger as well? Think about the story of Paul's life. Paul began as committed to the way of God, and he thought that anybody who followed Jesus was committing blasphemy, so much so that he was willing to go and rouse them up and bring them back and have them tried. But on his way to do that in Damascus, he encountered literally a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it changed his life. But how do you think those early Christians responded to him? For they had known him as being a man of intensity and in his, in his conviction and his belief, and yet now he had been converted and he had changed. How do we trust him, they would say? How do we connect with him? Paul spent considerable amounts of time in each one of his letters with mentioning that, that he has had a real experience, and he, his message and his person are believable, and they can be trusted. The message that came to the jail, to the jailer and, and to the, those in prison in Acts 16 was powerful. Paul and Silas had been preaching and, and teaching. They had an encounter with, you could say they had a, a transaction with the, the business leaders of the city, and they did something that displeased them, and they ended up being thrown into jail because of it. And as they were sitting there in jail, the middle of the night, an earthquake came, and the doors came off, the, off of the prisons. The, the, the shackles fell off their, their wrists and their feet. The door literally was opened. But those messengers, Paul and Silas, they stayed put. You know, when a door opens and we're in a place of confinement, it is a natural human reaction to want to go out. And certainly that is what the, the jailer thought. He thought that these people would flee, that they would run away, but they stayed. We're not told why they stayed, but they stayed. And the jailer was so fearful of those people who employed him that he was willing to end his own life 
rather than face those consequences. He wanted to be saved. He wanted to be delivered. But from what? Salvation is about preservation, not just the preservation for life eternal. It is also about the preservation of the present moment. The jailer was afraid what would happen to him, and so he was willing to commit suicide rather than face those consequences. It's as if he asked the question to Paul and Silas, what must I do to escape from death at my own hand? What must I do to have something to live for? We all have prisons of one form or another. Frederick Beekner, a Presbyterian minister and author, has described them in this way. We people erect walls to hide behind, both from each other and from ourselves. You repress the memory that is too painful to deal with. You deny your weight problem. You sublimate some of your sexual energy by channeling it into other forms of activity that are more socially acceptable. You conceal your sense of inadequacy behind a defensive bravado, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Beekner suggests that we build castles to keep other people out. But so often when we do build these castles or when we do build these walls to keep other people out, we find ourselves that we are keeping ourselves in and we are, in fact, our own jailers. To be in that place, he says, is to be in a wretched and lonely place. You can't be what you want to be or do what you want to do. People can't see through the masonry that you have built and half the time you're not sure you can see who you truly are because you've been walled up so long. We know that the jailer was about to do something drastic in Philippi. He was desperate. We don't know what had happened to him before. We just know that in that moment, he was desperate. And Paul responded to that desperation. Paul and Silas offered this jailer a new way of living. Paul and Silas opened a door to the jailer, not by going out it, but they opened a door into his spirit. And the jailer, along with Paul and Silas, walked through that door into a new place, into a new way of living, into a new relationship. The jailer took them home and he bound their wombs. He washed them up. He cleaned them up. He bathed them. And then Paul and Silas baptized the jailer and his family. And then they ate. Who says church people have, can't, can't eat? We've been doing it from the very, very beginning. All too often, as Christians in the United States, we want to make our faith about ascent, and we want to make it individual. We check the boxes and we're saved, yet there is so much more to it. Our households 
our communities, our congregations and churches. They all have a role in shaping us and creating us. A popular saying from a number of years ago was an African po proverb that, that ran, it takes a village to raise a child. I know that has a lot of baggage with it, but I, I want to ask you to strip that away for a second and consider something. When we baptize a child here at the font in this church, the congregation makes a promise that the congregation will stand and provide ways to nurture that child and the child's family and grow in their faith so they can grow in their faith. We make that promise for that child, and we make that promise for any child who comes into this place, and we make that promise not only for us here in Columbus, Georgia, but around the world for any Christian community. And so, if that child should leave this community and go to another one, that promise has been made and others are entrusted to keep it. And when a child comes to join us here, we are entrusted to keep that promise, not simply for that one individual, but for the world. It does take a household, a family, a community, a church to raise a child. It is not simply a matter of saying, I am a follower of Jesus. It is also a matter of saying, I belong to Jesus and to Jesus' people in a particular place at a particular time. Yes, we're pretty good at building walls. That's a whole other sermon. At the same time, we have within us the story and the spirit and the power of Jesus who can open doors through those walls in times and places that we may not expect. That question, what must I do, came at the point of a natural disaster, an earthquake. And so often when natural disasters occur, we ask questions like that. We ask questions, what must I do? What can we do? Why does this happen? What's going on here? Disasters can be natural or sometimes we can create them ourselves in our business life, in our social life, in our political and religious life. We can create our own disasters. And so we ask, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And in a real way, Paul and Silas opened up a whole world, not only to the Philippian jailer and to his household, but to an emerging church community in, Corinth, in, uh, in Philippi. Because he went there he went to their household, and they broke bread, and they had baptism. But it didn't end there, because Paul kept up his relationship with the church in Philippi. When you go over to the epistle to the Philippians to, in, the, in the New Testament, it begins with an effusive sort of thanksgiving. I thank my God every time I remember you, Paul writes, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing the gospel from the first day until now. He continues, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you share in God's grace with me. But in my imprisonment and the defense 
and in the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Paul had this deep and abiding affection for the church at Philippi. And it all came out because of that question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to find life? What must I do to live for something rather than die in my own hand? The door is open. The door is open. Beekner concluded his reflection on the prisons that we build ourselves into this way. Fortunately, there are two words that offer a way out, and they're simply these, help me. It's not always easy to say them. You have your pride, after all, and you're not sure that there's anybody you trust enough to say them to. But they're always worth saying. To another human being, a friend, a stranger, to God, maybe it all comes to the same thing. Help me. The open, they open a door through the walls. That's all. At least hope is possible again. At least you're no longer alone. Paul and Silas did not go through one open door. Rather, they went through the open door of the jailer's heart. Each one of us has a door in our own heart that we may open. Know that the door of this congregation is open, along with Jesus, when we ask that question, what must I do? What must we do? Thanks be to God. Amen.